would please, and if you would open them to Revelation chapter 20. This evening, we're in the third message concerning the coming kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Old Testament prophet Habakkuk prophesied concerning the kingdom, and he said, For the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as waters that cover the sea. Habakkuk is just one of the many Old Testament prophets that spoke of the coming kingdom, the coming golden age of the Lord upon the earth. And as I've stated before, the second coming of Christ is one of the most often prophesied events in all of Scripture. And the part of it that concerns the kingdom that comes after Christ comes to the world is one of the favorite topics of the Old Testament prophets. One of the first Old Testament prophecies or of that period was given by Enoch, And Enoch lived before the flood. And he said that the Lord would come with ten thousands of his saints. The book of Jude records that for us. And of course, Enoch skipped over a lot of information in between the coming of, second coming of the Lord. In fact, he skipped over the first coming of the Lord. But he said the Lord was going to come with ten thousands of his saints. And that is a promise that's repeated oftentimes in the scriptures. Now, among the prophecies that speak of the second coming, as I said, the portions that deal with the millennial kingdom are the ones that are most frequent. And so we have abundant information in Scripture about the kingdom. Uh, We've been studying the book of Revelation, of course, for these past uh, two, two and a half years or so. And we come to chapter 20 in Revelation that speaks of the kingdom, and there's not much information that's given here. It tells us that Christ will come and that he will rule Uh, But these text verses that we're reading this evening are the extent of what we have about the kingdom in the entire book of Revelation. And I suppose that perhaps God didn't see fit to deal with it here because he's already dealt with it so frequently elsewhere. And so that tells tells us, if nothing else, that what we need to do is to study every part of the Bible from cover to cover. We need to study God's Word because there's information in there that's important uh, for what we need to know about these kinds of things. So we're going to talk about the kingdom again tonight, and we're going to use other scriptures because we have so few that are here in Revelation. But it is very important, I think, for us to reach an understanding of what the kingdom will be like. And if God does give so much information about it elsewhere, then that's something that we ought to receive encouragement from, or at least God expects us to receive encouragement from it because he's coming back to this world to establish righteousness upon the earth. And that's because everything in the world is broken. Every aspect of this world is broken. Men are broken. Animals are broken. The environment is broken. Relationships are broken. Even in the spiritual world, you might say in a sense things are broken because of the rebellion of Satan. But most importantly of all, man's relationship with God is broken. Now, thank the Lord for this, that Jesus came into the world to repair the worst issue first, and that is the fact that we can't have a relationship with God without him. And so he came to die for our sins, and then all these other things that need to be fixing, need to be fixed, rather, those things are going to follow. Now, once again, we look at our text verses in Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse number 4, where John says, And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, 
neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years." Now, what we have been speaking of in these last couple of messages is the first point of this is the resplendent millennium. The resplendent millennium. And this is the aspect of the millennial kingdom from the standpoint of changes that will be made to repair some of the brokenness that I've just spoke of. The world world geographically and topographically will be a much different place. And that's because during the time of tribulation that precedes the kingdom, uh, that, that the God's judgments are going to have a devastating effect upon the landscape. Great earthquakes occur, such as the world has never seen before. Meteors will hit the earth. Fire consumes much of the earth. Uh, land masses are moved out of the way, the Bible says. Uh, mountain ranges are leveled. Islands in the sea will disappear. The scripture says in Isaiah chapter 40, Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. So we talked about this change in topography. We also talked about a change in longevity. People will live much longer in the millennial kingdom. And so when a person reaches the age of 100 years old, the Bible says that he'll still be like a child. And a preview of that aspect of the kingdom was given to us in the book of Matthew. When Jesus was here, he healed people of all different sorts of diseases. Uh, Every disease that's known to man, Jesus took care of. And in the millennial kingdom, there will be no childhood diseases, there are no cancers, there are no heart problems, no such things as Alzheimer's. And then we uh, have spoken about the environment. Uh, There's no pollution there. God ends hurricanes and tornadoes and hails and drought, uh, hail and drought. And the weather is a continual asset over the entire world. So it rains wherever it's needed. The sun shines wherever it's needed. There's no starvation anywhere on the planet. And so all of that, the good food, the great weather, the pure water, all of that contributes to the longevity of man. Then we also talked about the relationship between men and animals. That relationship is going to change. God did not create the world with carnivorous animals. He created it so animals would not live in fear and and men would not live in fear of animals. There would be no animosity between the two. When God created Adam, he created him to be a ruler over the creation. God told Adam that the earth was his domain. And so the animals were friendly to him. Now, we know that the curse changed all of that. But in the millennial kingdom, that's going to be restored. So we'll have no fear of snakes and none none of lions and tigers. You'll be able to walk through Annadale at night without getting eaten by a mountain lion or anything like that. National Geographic is not going to show crocodiles eating wildebeest and cheetahs chasing down zebras. That won't happen in the millennial kingdom. So there'll be perfect peace and harmony between man and animals. And then there's a change in morality. Morality is going to be greatly improved when righteousness reigns. So God is not going to allow vice and corruption, the kind that we see today. There won't be any such thing as a gay pride parade. There won't be any bars or nightclubs. There will be no internet pornography. 
And I thank the Lord for this, that there'll be no Facebook and tweets from foul-mouthed Christians either. There'll be no, no drunks, no drugs, no gangs, no medical marijuana. Sorry. No, no casinos and no Hollywood, no purpose-driven preachers. All of that's going to change because God is going to be glorified and exalted in every corner of the globe. Now, sin is not yet going to be gone. That, that has to be taken care of later. But God is going to lock that down so that anyone who sins against him is going to be dealt with very quickly and very severely. So it's going to be a much different world in the millennium. It's truly a golden age. And God shows us how, how good it can be when truth and justice and righteousness are implemented in its perfect form. So topography, we talked about that, uh, longevity, morality, relationship between men and animals. I'm going to move on to something else tonight, and uh, really this part concerns polity, concerns the government and who's going to govern and what the government is going to be like during the millennial kingdom. And we'll get to just one part of this tonight. We're going to talk about the reigning members of the kingdom. Verse number 4 says, And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Now, I think that we ought to begin this part by discussing the controversy over the inhabitants of the millennial kingdom. Who is going to live on the earth at that time? Uh, well, this verse mentions rulers in the kingdom, but who are the subjects that are in the kingdom? And I'll have to confess to you that I don't think that it's 100% possible for us to determine with certainty exactly who the subjects will be. Now, let me tell you what, what, what the difference or the problem is. There, there are many good men that are on both sides of this issue. And as I've taught through Revelation, I, I have favored the position that all the people that are in their mortal bodies during the millennium are lost people. And those are the ones that were told that Christ is going to rule with a rod of iron. All the believers, I think, have been martyred before the tribulation or before the millennium begins. And, and so all saved people that are in the millennium are in their glorified bodies. And, and that and the belief that the judgment seat of Christ occurs at the end of the tribulation leads me to believe that no one will be saved during the millennium. Now, there, there's a lot of difference of opinion on that. Uh, so all of the lost that are in the millennium uh, will remain so and all of their children will be lost and they'll be ruled with a rod of iron so that when Satan is loosed at the end of this period they're ready to throw off the yoke of God but there are other opinions on this and they're and they're plausible opinions in, in verse 21 of chapter 19 the scripture says and the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse which sword proceeded out of his mouth and all the fowls were filled with their flesh now, that's speaking of the Battle of Armageddon. And some take that not only will the armies at Armageddon all be completely destroyed, but Christ will also kill all unbelievers in every other part of the world. And so under that view, it means that there are no lost people that enter into the millennium, but the ones that go in are saved people that have survived the tribulation. So everyone that goes into the kingdom in a natural body is actually a believer in Christ. So the millennium starts out great for them. They're believers in Christ, but those believers have children, and their children are unregenerate. 
And that's because a person that's in the, in the natural body cannot produce anything other than a child that has a sinful nature. I mean, that, that always, it always happens that way. Every child born into the world has a sinful nature because their parents have sinful natures. So these children then will grow up during the millennium, and many of them will receive Christ, but many of them will not. And so they are sinners, and they're forced to live under the rule of Christ, and so they're ruled with that rod of iron. And with the end of disease and the long lives during that time, there's a population explosion over the entire earth so that there are many lost people by the end of the millennium. And then those are the ones that, are, that rebel against God when Satan is loose from the abyss. But there are problems with that position, and maybe there's a way to overcome them. I think it would require some adjustments. It means that the judgment seat of Christ must be moved to the end of the millennium rather than at the beginning or end of the tribulation. And that would be so that people that are saved and are in their natural bodies during the millennial time would be able to be judged. Now, that seems to be a problem to me because you have some people that are glorified. They're in their glorified bodies and they're ruling in the kingdom without yet being judged. And that seems to be a difficulty to me because that would mean that Christ allows them to rule without ever having been judged to receive their rewards. And it makes more sense to me that um, part of the ruling positions in the millennial kingdom are based upon the faithfulness of Christians. So it really doesn't make sense to me to move the judgment all the way to the end of the millennium. So any way that you go at this, I mean, you're going to have some problems And we just don't have enough information in Scripture to be 100% sure whether all these are lost people or all saved people that enter in the millennium. It kind of works under either system. But there's one thing that we do know for sure, and that is that God's people will rule with him in the kingdom. And we know that because that's what God promised. But the question is, which of God's people will rule in the kingdom? Now, the answer to that, I think, is a little bit simpler. And the short answer I'll give you, all of them, all of God's people will rule during the millennium. Uh, of course, I've just told you I believe they're all in glorified bodies, and they'll rule with Christ. But let me, let's back up just a little bit, and let's see why that's true. So next, we're going to talk about the thrones of governing. Who sits on the thrones? He says, and I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. Now, if you're given to allegorical interpretations of the Scripture, and this is what most covenant theologians believe, if you're given to an allegorical interpretation, then you believe that we're living in the kingdom right now. That's what the amillennialist believes. He believes that we're living in the kingdom right now. So we come to Revelation chapter 20, and the question would be, what are the thrones and who sits on these thrones? Now, anywhere... Is there anywhere where, where Christians are ruling in the world right now? Well, there's hostility towards Christianity no matter where you go. And where Christianity has had strong influence over governments, it's not really true Christianity at all. Our founding fathers had the opportunity to give us a state religion and have the religion have part of the rule of our government. And do you know who resisted that proposition the most strenuously? It was Baptist people. And the reason we resisted it, because we were the ones that were most often persecuted by the Christian government. And that's always been a problem with Roman Catholicism. It was a problem with Protestantism. Both of them made a terrible mistake in trying to join the church with the state. 
And so, the, the saying that, or the old adage, that absolute power corrupts absolutely has always been true also in Christian nations. Now, interestingly, the person who said this, absolute power corrupts absolutely, was Lord Acton, who was a Roman Catholic historian. Now, his entire quote goes this way. All power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men, even when they exercise influence and not authority. Still more, when you superadd the tendency or certainty of corruption by full authority. There is no worse heresy than that the office sanctifies the holder of it. Now, let me tell you why this Roman Catholic historian said this. This was said in the late 19th century when Pope Pius IX declared papal infallibility. He was against it. And he's the one who said absolute power corrupts absolutely. And it had reference to the Pope actually ruling the government. Well, here's what would happen if we tried to superimpose Christianity upon the American government. We're fallible. And with all the differences that we have in our opinions about the Bible and everything else and everybody that calls themselves Christians, it wouldn't be long before we would throw our government into absolute chaos. Christianity is not meant to rule the world now. It's intended for the millennial kingdom. And the reason it's intended then is because then we have a perfectly righteous ruler who will have absolute authority. Christ's absolute rule is incorruptible. And those that rule and reign with him are perfect as he is perfect. And so, it, it's, that's the only time we can have Christianity rule the world when the, when the righteous ruler is actually here who has no corruption at all. So who are the rulers? Well, let me give you four different groups that are going to rule alongside Christ in the millennium. First of all, believers before Christ will reign. Now, let me back up just a minute before I get to that. I just Something just came to my mind. I want to make sure I'm clear about, clear about this. I mean, I'm not opposed to us having Christian people in our government. Uh, and if we can elect Christian representatives and congressmen and presidents and everything, I'm all for that. But Christianity cannot rule our government. It's a bad thing. It can only rule in the millennial kingdom. So I want to make that clear to you. So believers before Christ will reign. And I think that we have to start with that because of all these Old Testament prophecies that we have that are given concerning the kingdom. And we're going to talk about Israel's relationship to the kingdom next week. But we would certainly have to think that people in the Old Testament that were continually given this promise that, they would, that there's a kingdom that's coming, that they would actually have a part of it. God promised that David's throne would be an everlasting throne. And when God gave hope to Israel when they were in the captivity, he still gave them this promise that the kingdom is coming. And he gave a, a, a prophecy to Daniel. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, it says, And I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven, and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which will not be destroyed. In verse number 18 it says, But the saints of the Most High shall take the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. And in the 21st verse, Daniel speaks of the Antichrist making war with God's people. And it says, I beheld, and the same horn, that's the Antichrist, made war with the saints and prevailed against them, 
until the ancient of days came. That's the second coming. And judgment was given unto the saints of the Most High. And the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. So here in Daniel's prophecy, it says, The saints shall take the kingdom, they shall possess the kingdom, and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High. Now, could you believe that Daniel intended when he gave that prophecy, or God intended that Old Testament believers would be kept from reigning with Christ or with the Messiah? Now, obviously, the people that Daniel prophesied to would would understand this as great hope for them. They look forward to this. They would possess the kingdom and they would rule with the Messiah. In the fourth chapter of Revelation, uh, John saw the throne of God in heaven and surrounding it were 24 other thrones. And I don't have time to go back into that chapter to describe to you what all that's about. We've been over that months and months ago. But those 24 thrones are representative of believers in all ages. And so we certainly would have to believe that it represents believers that would be before Christ came. And then in the fifth chapter, uh, John mentions those 24 elders again, and he says they all fall down and they worship Christ. Revelation chapter 5 says, And they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by the blood out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. There are two things that are important in that 10th verse. First is the fact that these 24 elders will reign, and secondly, where they will reign. It says they will reign on the earth. Now that tells us that the Old Testament saints are going to be included in God's reign. And it also establishes that there will be a physical kingdom upon the earth. So you can't just pass this off as being symbolic or allegorical. It says they will reign on the earth. So all the saved before Christ, B.C. believers, if you want to call them that, they will reign with him on the earth. Now secondly... The apostles will reign. Now, this morning in our study of Matthew, I mentioned how that James and John once asked Christ about ruling with him in his kingdom. And that story, is, to me, it's almost funny in a way because you have these two guys, these two apostles that Jesus termed or called them the sons of thunder, and they had to have their mother jockey for a position in the kingdom. Now, I suppose what they wanted to do was jump in line first and get ahead of all the other apostles. So they had their mother push the envelope with Jesus. Now, let's turn over to Matthew chapter 20, if you would, for a moment. And we've only got uh, time to read a part of this. But it sure tells you this. The apostles at this particular time did not yet understand what their present role was. Before they could ever be exalted they would have to be brought low as Jesus was. Now, if you look in Matthew chapter 20, verse number 20, it says, Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children. That would be James and John. She came with her sons, worshiping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said unto her, What wilt thou? She saith unto him, Grant that these my sons may sit, the one on thy right hand and the other on the left, in thy kingdom. Now, if you go down to verse number 24, And when the ten heard it, they were moved with indignation against the two brethren. But Jesus called them unto him and said, Ye know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them. But it shall not be so among you. But whosoever will be great among you, 
let him be your minister. And whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, the disciples fully expected that Jesus would establish a kingdom on the earth. The problem is they didn't understand the timing of it. So evidently, they thought the kingdom was coming quickly. And so they began to get giddy about it and rub their hands together and said, this is going to be so great. We're going to rule in a kingdom on the earth. We've got it made. And in Luke chapter 22, the scripture says that all of the apostles fought the same way. It says there was strife among them, which of them would be accounted the greatest. Now, in the verses that we skipped, Jesus let them know that things were going to get mighty, mighty rough for them. They would be persecuted, there would be problems, and they were not yet ready to rule. Before they would ever be ready to rule, they had to be brought low. But they would have a prominent place of ruling. And that, this is actually what prompted this question in chapter 20 when, when James and John, John's mother came to Jesus. It's because in chapter 19, Jesus told them they would rule with him from a very special place. Now, if you go back to chapter 19 in Matthew, uh, Matthew, it says in verse number 27, Then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you that ye which have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the tribes of Israel. So Peter says, we've given up everything to follow you, Lord. What are we going to get out of this? And we notice in verse number 28, Jesus said, Ye which have followed me in the regeneration. Now I want you to take careful note there because regeneration in that place does not mean the new birth. Jesus is not saying, those of you that have followed me and have been born again. Regeneration here is another word for the kingdom. It's the time when God regenerates the earth in order to make it like the Garden of Eden again. So Jesus told them, these twelve would sit on thrones judging Israel in the kingdom. So James and John must have been thinking about that, or at least their mother was thinking about it, and that's why uh, she came and asked Jesus the question. And she wanted to be sure, and I'm sure they did as well, they wanted to be sure that their thrones would be closest to Jesus, because those would be the most prominent places. So based upon the fact that we know that the kingdom is primarily Jewish in character, we know that the 12 apostles will occupy some of these thrones that we read about in Revelation chapter 20. So if you want to call them A.D. apostles, uh, Anno Domini apostles, uh, they're going to rule on thrones. So you have B.C. believers and A.D. apostles. So who, who, who else are on the thrones? Well, number three, church-age Christians will reign. Church-age Christians. Well, what is the church age? Well, the church age began when Jesus established the church, and that would be starting with the 12 apostles who were the original members and then continuing on until Jesus takes us out of this world at the rapture. So the church age has lasted now for about 2,000 years, and it will continue until Jesus comes back to rapture the church out of the world. Now, how do I know that, or how do we know that that you and I, those of us that are sitting in the room tonight that are saved, how do we know that we are also going to sit on thrones? Well, we could go back to Daniel, and we could read chapter 7 again that we read a moment ago, and there it said the saints will possess the kingdom. And every one of us that's a believer in Jesus Christ is a saint. Now, here's the good news for you. 
Everybody sitting here in the room tonight who is a believer in Jesus Christ, you beat Pope John Paul II to becoming a saint. Now, he had to wait for a group of crusty old men to canonize him, and he's still waiting on that. But God canonized us when we trusted in Jesus Christ. So we're all saints. We've all been canonized, and we've been canonized by the one who counts. That's God, not a crusty bunch of old men. So we can go back to that scripture. But there's a much, much more explicit statement that's made in the New Testament that Paul makes to the Corinthian church. And this is really an interesting reference because in, in this, this passage, Paul is complaining against the Corinthian church that they didn't take the responsibility to judge matters in the church. Instead, they took the common disputes that were going on between the members of the church and they took those things to civil courts and let the civil court decide it. So here's what Paul says to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He says, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? Paul says that in a way that they should have already known this. Now, I think that Paul had probably already taught them about this before, but if he hadn't taught them, there are all these Old Testament scriptures that are there that, that tell us that saints are going to rule in the kingdom. So when are they going to judge the world? He says, you're going to judge the world, but when is that going to happen? Well, we'll judge the world when Christ begins his kingdom upon the earth. Paul wrote to Timothy. He said essentially the same thing in 2 Timothy chapter 2. He said, It is a faithful saying, For if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. That was in the scripture we had in our, in our Bible reading time this morning. Let me give you another reference. Revelation 2 verse 20, uh, 26. Jesus is speaking to the seven churches of Asia. And he says, He that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. So there we have another group that's going to sit on thrones. We have B.C. believers, we have A.D. apostles, and we have C.A. Christians, church-age Christians. Well, there's still another one. Number four, tribulation martyrs will reign. And this group is unquestionable because we have it right here in our text in Revelation 20. Verse 4 says, And I saw thrones, and they that sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. Now if the Bible is... is filled with poetic justice for the people of God, this is surely one of the greatest examples that we have. Those people that it's speaking about here are people that will suffer and die under the reign of the Antichrist. Now, in chapter 13, there was an image that was set up to the Antichrist, and this idol was given demonic power. It had the ability to speak. Now, that's a pretty powerful sign, isn't it? You put up an image, and all of a sudden, this image comes to life, and it's able to speak. And many people are going to be fooled by that, and they'll think, well, this can't be anything but God. I mean, who could do anything like this but God? And it kind of reminds us of uh, the charismatics that are fooled by the wild gibberish of speaking in tongues. And they think it comes from God. There's only two spirits that operate in the world. One is the spirit of Christ, 
and the other is the spirit of the Antichrist. That's what the Apostle John said in the, in the book of 1 John. So the charismatics uh, fall under the prey of, uh, fall prey to Satan, I believe, because that's one of his great deceptive powers. He's able to make things look like they come from God when they're not actually of God. So these demonic powers give the image the ability to speak, and so everyone is commanded to worship that image. They're also told to receive the mark of the beast, either in their right hand or in their foreheads. And without that mark, they can't buy, they can't sell. All commerce is controlled by the Antichrist. And then that mark is also an identifier. It tells you tells whether you're a Christian or not, because Christians are not going to receive that mark. True believers will not receive it. Now, you can imagine all different kinds of things about this, and we talked a little bit about it in the forum class this morning, but uh, all different things, kinds of things that are happening today that would lead us to believe that society is moving towards such a system. Now, it's not a long stretch for us to, to imagine the government requiring a barcode before you could get on an airplane or before you could buy your groceries or vote or do anything like that. I mean, that that's not too, not, doesn't seem to be too much of a stretch. But these are people that re, refuse to receive the mark. They're believers. They were converted during the tribulation time. And there are millions of these people. They're Jews and Gentiles that believe the gospel of Christ. And, and so these people are persecuted and they're killed. They refuse to follow the Antichrist, even when it means their deaths. Now, if you would, let's go back to chapter 6 in Revelation for just a minute. And this is the uh, chapter that deals with the four horsemen of the apocalypse, as it's called. And in verse number 7, there is the opening of the seventh seal, which unleashes death upon God's people. And then the fifth seal is open, and here is where we see the first martyrs of the tribulation. In Revelation 6, verse number 7, And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and his name that sat upon him, or sat on him, was death, and hell followed with him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with a sword and with hunger and with death and with the beast of the earth. And when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on the earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them. And it was said unto them that they should rest yet for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were should be fulfilled. So the question that the martyrs ask is how long do we have to wait until our deaths are avenged? And the answer comes back to them until all the rest of the saints in the tribulation are killed. And then when that happens, these martyrs that suffered under the cruel rule of the Antichrist are going to be elevated. They'll come into the kingdom, and they'll be rulers in that kingdom. And they, they're, they're rulers because they didn't receive the mark. They didn't bow down to the image. And so the reward that God gives these martyrs is that they will also sit on thrones judging in the millennial kingdom. Verse 26 in Revelation says again, And he that overcometh and keepeth my works unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations. Folks, that's what I call poetic justice. God is going to have vengeance for his children. Every persecution, every problem that you have in the world, God is going to avenge that. Now, 
we, I, I don't think that we should be gleeful now in thinking that, that God's going to take sinners and throw them into hell and be happy about it. Our job right now is to convert people so that they don't go to hell. And we should sorrow and, and mourn over the fact that people die and go to hell. But there's coming a day when people that are martyred during the tribulation time, they will have this in their minds. We need to be avenged of our deaths. And God promises that that will be done. So who's going to rule in the kingdom? B.C. believers, A.D. apostles, C.A. Christians, and then you can add that fourth one, M.T. martyrs. Massacred tribulation martyrs. So you have all saints from all ages that rule and reign with Christ. Now, I've already told you, I think they're all in glorified bodies, and they'll sit on thrones judging the world. So it's going to be a great kingdom. There's a lot to talk about here. Next week, I want to come back and talk about this again. And we're going to talk about the government in the millennial kingdom. And, and, that's a, and it's going to be a wonderful government as well. We'll see uh, some more things about the type of ruling that goes on there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the time to be here tonight and look into your word. And we, we, we're just so thankful that Jesus Christ, that, that gives us salvation. And Lord, we know that you're coming back and you'll take us out of this world and then we'll be able to rule with you in a perfect kingdom. Lord, uh, you, you told us, as you gave that model prayer in Matthew chapter 6, that we are to pray, Thy kingdom come. And that's what we're looking for, the kingdom of God to come. Bless your people, Lord. We thank you for this study tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.